All right. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. And if you were watching me, you realized, like, I wasn't lying. But, like, one of the things I'm looking forward to in the new heaven and the new earth is rhythm. Uh, you can't beat it. Uh, yeah. And... Uh, yeah, I just, I just love, I, I love rhythm. Like when I, I was telling Henry too, like our subwoofers weren't working until this week. And so like his, his, whatever the big drum is, uh, I was feeling that this morning. I just love that. So uh, if you don't like drums, sorry, but um, I, I, I love rhythm, but I don't have it. So um, anyway, thank you for like, and I just want to encourage us as a church family, like there are all sorts of ways that the scriptures encourage us to, to worship the Lord. And so I think we could be a little bit more free here. And so um, for whatever that's worth to you, even though I have no ability to do it. There, there was a pastor friend of mine that, that uh, he kind of convicted me on this because he said, like, the real worship leader is like, and he would use the term senior pastor. I wouldn't use that term, but is the senior pastor because um, people will take their cues from him, like, on how they should, like, worship. And so don't take your cues for, like, from me or... I don't know if any of the pastors have rhythm, like, do, like um, Dave. Aaron, Aaron does, yeah, he's on staff here, so you can take your cue from him, so anyway, back on subject, um, we, if you're new to us, we are, we are uh, studying through the book of John, and we are in John chapter 6 this morning, and you know, and in John chapter 6, we're going to see uh, a couple really, really familiar stories this morning. Probably two of the more familiar miracles that Jesus did. And, and, it's beca- and as we see those miracles, we're going to see like how massively popular Jesus became um, when, he came, when he came to earth the first time. You know, but one of the things that John does for us is, is he kind of weaves, you know, the two, the two stories that we're going to look at is Jesus feeding the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water. And it was, uh, I was texting Brian, I think it was texting or emailing Brian, whatever it was this, this week, because he, he wanted to know what the text was going to be and everything. And I was struggling for a name for the sermon, a title, and he came up with one and I couldn't come up with anything better. So I'm just going with Brian's title, which is Dinner in a Cruise. Um, <laughs> Jesus feeding 5,000 and walking on the water, dinner and a cruise, but two perspectives. What John does is he, is he contrasts for us like the experience of the disciples in those events with the, the experience and perspective of the crowds. Because as mo- massively popular as Jesus was, and we're going to discover as we make our journey over the next couple of weeks through John chapter 6, it's a really long chapter, we're going to spend three weeks in it. As we, as we spend the next three weeks going through John chapter 6, what we're going to see is that there were a lot of people who claimed to follow Jesus. There were a lot of people who, who claimed to respect Jesus, who claimed to believe in Jesus. But when, but when push came to shove, they bailed on Jesus. And so what we're going to see on this is that we're going to see this contrast between two kinds of faith, like the genuine faith and the experience of following Jesus of the disciples with the kind of faith um, that the crowds have that, that, that's probably more akin to like being a fan of Jesus than genuine like reliance and faith in him. You know, it's gonna, our story's going to break out uh, in the two sections. Uh, the first one is the dinner was on the lawn, is that we're going to have different experiences on the lawn when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and then we're going to have different journeys across the sea, um, depending on which group of people you were, whether you were a follower of Jesus or simply just a fan of Jesus. And I think it's important for us this morning because, you know, you can, 
you can have all sorts of like respect and appreciation for Jesus. But unless you have like genuine faith and reliance upon him, um, your commitment to him might not be the, the kind of commitment that gives you life that Jesus promised. Like John spoke this gospel so that we would have life in Jesus' name. And the majority, or at least a lot of people in the stories we're going to see over the next couple of weeks, um, thought they believed in Jesus, but really didn't. And the events of John chapter 6 will expose that to them. So please stand with me. I'm going to read that first account of the feeding of the 5,000 in, ver- in verses 1 through 15. Then we'll pray and get into our study together. John chapter 6, 1 through 15. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, And a great multitude was following him because they were seeing the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Jesus, therefore, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a great multitude was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread that these may eat? And this he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he intended to do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are those for so many people? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the man sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus therefore took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed it to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. And when the disciples were filled, he said to his disciples, or when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so he gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments from the barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. When therefore the people saw the sign which which he had performed, they said, this is of truth, the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, went again to the mountain by himself alone. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word, and I thank you that Jesus Christ is worthy to be praised and that um, he's the one that nourishes us and cares for us. And Father, I just ask that you would accomplish that this morning, that you would nourish us from your word, that we would hear it and believe it and submit to it and, and love you more because of it. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. You know, in the first couple verses, the first uh, th- four verses of this, uh, it's kind of laying out the uh, is laying out uh, the just the setting. You know, last time we saw Jesus, he was in Jerusalem at one of the feasts. Here, he's back in Galilee, and he's out. He's along the Sea of Galilee. In fact, he's on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And there's a whole bunch of language here that hints towards like the events of the Passover and the events of the Exodus. It talks about that the Passover was at hand, like John's putting that into our head, like the, the celebration where the, the nation of Israel would celebrate their deliverance out of, out of slavery in Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, going to Mount Sinai where they were shaped into a people. That whole event is being, was being uh, we're being reminded that that's close upon them, that celebration of it. The things that we remembered on Good Friday where Jesus, like, it was the Passover that Jesus was celebrating as he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. So it was the event where Jesus himself ties in his own redemptive work for each of us to that same picture of being delivered out of slavery in Egypt and, and brought through the Red Sea and brought to the mountain where we're shaped into a people. 
And it talks about that, that Jesus went up to a mountain. You know, they were out, they were on the other side of the Jordan. There's all these illusions that if you were a Jew, you might be like, oh, this kind of sounds like the Exodus a little bit. But then Jesus himself explicitly ties it in with that down in verse 32. If you look ahead down in verse 32, he's talking about the Exodus. And he says, Jesus therefore said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. He ties in what he's doing here in the feeding of the 5,000 with when, like, with when Moses and God provided for the nation of Israel through the manna in the wilderness. And, and Jesus then later on will say that he's the true bread. So there's all of these connections to the Exodus and the, and the forming of a people that kind of bring us into this story. And, and that, that'll, that'll you know, have some significance later on. But then Jesus does this in verse 5. Jesus, therefore, lifting up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread that these may eat? Actually, this is the first time that the disciples were on the scene. Like the last time we saw the disciples in the book of John was clear back in chapter 4 when they were interacting with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, if you were here for that. And, and when Jesus was talking about to the Samaritan woman he said, and talking to his disciples around that whole event, He's, he, he, says, he says to them, lift up your eyes and look because the harvest is plentiful or the fields are white to harvest. I have it here in John 4. This is what he said. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields for they are white for harvest. That was the last time we saw the disciples. Jesus was telling them to look out. See all the people that he wants to reach. And the same thing happens here. They're up on this mountain. This crowd of people is coming to him. And he lifts up his eyes and looks upon them. And then he says to one of his disciples, Philip, he's like, hey, where are we going to buy food for all of these people to eat? You know, Jesus expresses his heart for them. He wants to provide and nourish and care for this multitude of people. And he says to Philip, like, hey, like, where's the closest 7-Eleven, right? Like, and it's interesting what John tells us here. John tells us uh, in verse 6, and this he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. This idea of testing that Jesus is wanting to do for his disciples is that he wants to kind of, like, expose something in their hearts he wants to kind of reveal what they're really trusting and what they're really believing, what they're really thinking, and he wants to teach them something. Jesus knew what he was going to do. He didn't need their help. He didn't need their counsel. He didn't need to know where the nearest store was. He, but he knew that they needed to learn some things, and he wanted to test them and to reveal some things about them and to teach them. And what you see, those guys' response is just like, Philip's response is imminently practical. He doesn't even answer Jesus' question, actually. Uh, verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. Jesus asked where we can buy food. Philip was like, it doesn't really matter if there was a store here. Well, that's never happened before. <laughs> doesn't really matter if there's a store here um, because even if there was a store, which there wasn't, if you had eight months of salary, it's not going to be enough money to buy 5,000 meals for these people. 
Like, why are you even asking, Jesus? We don't have that kind of cash. And then Andrew, verse 8, he actually, you know, he's kind of a literal guy, I guess, because he actually answers Jesus' question. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, hey, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what is that for so many people? He's like, oh, we could buy off this guy's lunch. <laughs> we could afford that. But like, what, what would even matter? You know, what Jesus is doing is he's placing his disciples in this place where they feel this responsibility to, like, be agents of his care for his people. And he's putting them in a situation where, they're, where they are totally incapable of doing it on their own. Like, I've planned a couple weddings, and you think about, like, you know, I, I don't know how many of you have planned weddings, but um, I've had two daughters get married in... You know, there's always a lot of stress around, like, the reception, right? Like, making sure you have enough food, and then you're always, like, leaning down the guest list to make sure you can afford it. You guys know what I'm talking about? 5,000 people. And you have to provide them lunch. And the disciples are like, and, and there's no store, and there's no money. They are totally incapable of doing it on their own. And look what Jesus does. Verse 9, no, verse 10. And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus therefore took the loaves and having given thanks. It's interesting because his, his expression of giving thanks is going to appear again. Like John wants us to remember that. Like Everything we have, whether it's little or much, comes from the hand of the Lord. And, and Jesus gives thanks for these five loaves and few fish. In verse 11, Jesus took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise, all of the fish, and as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to his disciple, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing can be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the barley loaves, which were left over by those who, were eaten, who had eaten. It's this amazing miracle. They take just a little lunch, and I don't know how it all played out. I, I just can't even, I can't even conceive of how it would have functioned. But Jesus keeps breaking off bread, and he keeps giving it to his disciples, and his disciples are running it out like, like they're the waiters, right, at this big, like, lawn party. And I did the math this morning, because I was like, I wonder how long that took. If it took 20, if you had 12 disciples working, and it took 20 seconds per person, which it had to have taken longer than that, because you're running it back and forth, Right? But if it only took 20 seconds per person with 12 disciples, it took over two hours just to get everybody the food. Like there's so many people and so much service going on. Disciples are running like probably to try to get everybody food in this. That there's that. And, and when they're done, Jesus is like, okay, time for cleanup. And, and they go, they each probably have a basket. And they have 12 baskets full of like food. Like, way more food. Each one of them has way more food than that they even started with. You know, and I think it's significant that there's 12 baskets. I think, I think that's meant to communicate something to us. Interestingly enough, it's at the end of this chapter. I think it's in verse 68 is the first time that we're told in the Gospel of John. It's, oh, it's not in verse 68. It's in verse 66. Nope, not 66. 67. It's in verse... Really, I was 68 and 66, should have just gone for the middle. 67, Jesus therefore said to the 12. That's the first reference to there being 12 disciples in the Gospel of John. 
So they probably each had a basket, but I think there's more to that. Like the disciples became the apostles upon whom the church was founded. And there's echoes in the 12 disciples about the 12 tribes. So in the Jewish mind, as you hear, like there's these 12s, 12 disciples and 12 baskets. I think one of the things that the Spirit is just alluding to and kind of gives him this little shadow and foretaste of is that Jesus has the ability to provide for the needs of all of his people. All 12 tribes, all the foundations of the church, like he has the ability to accomplish his work and and he has more than enough resources to do, like to empower his people to do the ministry that he wants them to do. That's what the disciples are learning, right? They were placed in this situation of responsibility and complete incapability and yet Jesus like taught them that he has enough to accomplish his work. You know, it's interesting, that test that, that they came to, you know, where, where Jesus was exposing something in their hearts. Like, um, there's a similar test that happened during Exodus in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Listen to what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He's, Moses is talking to the nation of Israel before they go into the promised land, and he says this. He says, you shall remember all the way the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he, now listen, I'll read that verse three again. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your father know that you, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He's like, in, in, the, in the desert, he wanted to teach his people something that, like, food is not, like, all that you need. You need my word. You need, you need the, what my word points you to. You need everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And, in fact, Jesus draws that same lesson for his disciples. If you look ahead to verse uh, 63, this one's right, verse 63. Jesus is talking, and he says, It is the Spirit whose life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. What the disciples were learning is that they, they could rely on the person of Jesus. They could trust his word. And we says, have the people sit down and start handing out bread. Like, just do it. Because his words are spirit and life, and they have power, and they are what brings life. You know, as, as, like, as elders and staff here at the church, we've been having a lot of conversation about how we can do a better job of, of like being faithful in the ministry that God's given us to. Because if you think about the task of ministry, you know, that, that God wants each and every one of us here to be his representatives in this world and see people, like, find life in Jesus. He wants to establish his church and, and protect her and teach her and feed her and nourish her and care for her. He wants his church to, to raise up leaders. He wants his church to, like, plant other churches. He wants his, right? Like, all of these things. And, like, frankly, I'm getting kind of old. Like, when I was young, I thought I could probably do it on my own strength, right? That was stupid. Now it just feels overwhelming, right? The task that God called us to, I think if we're honest with ourselves, can sometimes feel overwhelming and too much and way beyond and way beyond your capabilities and your resources and your 
But the truth of feeding the 5,000 that he taught his disciples is that in him there is life. In fact, he, he says that he's the bread that nourishes. He has plenty of resources to enable you and to enable me and to enable us as a church to accomplish those things that God wants us to accomplish. We just need to like listen to him and do what he says. That's the experience that the disciples were having. having. You know, but the the response of the crowd and the experience of the crowd was was something quite different. If you look, I mean, look up at verse... um, Verse 11, Jesus therefore took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. And when they were filled. So the the crowd, like, they just get to sit on the lawn. The crowd gets to observe this miracle as just recipients of it. The disciples are running back and forth, like carrying all the food. And they, it says, they ate as much as they were wanted until they were filled. Like, this wasn't like communion, right? Where you have, like, this little cup and this little piece of bread. Like, that wasn't what was going on. These people, like, ate until they were like, oh, time for a football game, right? Like, like watching one, not playing one, right? So they ate until they were filled. And then look at their response. Um, verse, verse 14. And when, therefore, the people saw the sign which he had performed... They said, this is of a truth, the prophet who is to come into the world. They're like, this is the prophet. And, we, and this idea of the prophet has come up multiple times in John already. But there's a, there was this prophecy through Moses that God would raise up another Moses to rescue his people. And in fact, it's in Deuteronomy 18. And, and this is why it's important to read the context of like verses. Instead of just like cherry picking one, putting it on your like mug and like, Claiming that for, for whatever and then being disappointed when it doesn't play out the way you like it. It's important to read the context because the, here's this promise of this prophet who's coming into the world like Moses to rescue his people. Deuteronomy 18 verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up a prophet for, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. Just a little context. The nation of Israel was exposed to like the glory of God, kind of like what Brian said this morning. And they were like, No, 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 too much. From now on, just send prophets to us, because like we can't handle that. Verse 17, the Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words that he will speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So this idea that God's going to send a prophet comes along with the idea that, hey, you should probably listen to him. And if you don't listen to it, God will require it of you. Like you'll answer to God himself whether or not you listen to his prophet Jesus when he comes. Look what happens to this group of people. They're claiming that he's a prophet. Skip ahead to verse, I think this is verse uh, verse 60. Skip ahead to verse 60. So Jesus is talking to them about what it means to follow him. Then in verse 60, he says this, 
Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? He's the prophet that's going to speak to us from God, but like, wait, 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 wait. This totally doesn't fit my expectations. This totally doesn't fit what I've always believed. It, 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 like, it sounds like a little extreme, Jesus. Like, who can, who can listen to that? Down, then look down at verse 68. Nope, not 68, verse 66. <laughs> 66. I should probably use my notes more often. Verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Oh, he's a prophet. Oh, we don't like what he's got to say. We're out. You know, ironically, look what happens down in verse 15. You know, at, you know, right after they say he's the prophet, they say something else or we're exposed to something else. Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king. There's so much irony in that statement. Like, first of all, a king, by definition, is someone that you submit to. And here, they're going to come and coerce Jesus into becoming their king. They have no intention of, like, submitting to him as king. They just realize, like, hey, here is a guy who can meet all of our needs, who can provide for us all of the physical stuff, who can give me everything I want. So I'm going to co-opt him for my political purposes and my political gain and so that I can have a good and comfortable and well-provided-for life. In fact, that's what Jesus calls them out for. Look what he, look what he says, and I'm going to find it before I say my verse this time. <laughs> verse 26, Jesus rebukes them. Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, because you ate the loaves and were filled. They did see the sign. They saw that he fed them. But what Jesus is saying is that a sign, by definition, points to something greater. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Like if I just showed you a picture of Rachel on my phone, instead of introducing you to her, that would be kind of crazy, right? The sign points you to something greater. And yet, they just wanted the food. They viewed God's provision for them through Jesus as just an end in itself. They viewed the food as, as kind of the thing that they needed. And they didn't look past the provision to the provider and, like, submit to him. In fact, they were going to do the opposite, make him submit to them and become their king. So here you have these two pictures of, of so-called faith. You have the disciples' faith as they follow Jesus, who are put into this place of like responsibility, this place of inadequacy, this place of incompetence, where all that they had left was to trust in Jesus and believe his word and follow him in it. And, and they became part of this great miracle where they learn something about him and, and they, they apprehended more of Jesus because of their obedience. That's one type of faith. The other type of faith is just coming to Jesus for everything he can provide for you. I want the security of a king. I want the security of a guy that can just conjure up provision out of the thin air. I want all of this. We want what Jesus provides for us, but we don't really want him. We don't want to submit to him as king. We don't want to submit to his word as the prophet. We just want everything that he can give us. That kind of faith 
won't give you the life that Jesus intends for you. It's the kind of faith that just walks away as soon as he says something you don't like or he doesn't deliver on your coffee mug promise or he doesn't do whatever you expect him to do. I had originally done this in my, in my notes as like a would you rather question and I couldn't think of a good way to articulate it without it being too wordy like I always am. But it is kind of like a would you rather question. Would you rather be in this situation where, where you could just sit under the reign of Christ or you wouldn't sit under his reign because you're not really submitting to him, but where Jesus provides all of your needs as you go about your day-to-day life so you don't have to worry about all those things that stress you? Or would you rather be in that situation where you're going to know Jesus deeper because you're in that like constant rhythm of like desperation and dependence and having to like take that, that disconcerting step of faith and trust in Jesus and, and then see him deliver you and know him deeper and trust him deeper only to go through that cycle again? That's the question. I think the life of faith, and we're going to see the disciples go through the cycle again as soon as this is over. The life of faith is one where we trust, where we follow Jesus. And because life is found in Jesus, not in what he gives us, he wants us to know more and more and more and more of him. And so he puts us in those situations where we can come to know him deeper. But I think a lot of us, I mean, the would you rather question, I, I, well, I was going to abandon it, but then I came back to it. It's kind of... It's kind of dumb because none of us is going to say, I just want everything that Jesus gives me, but I don't really want Jesus. Maybe some of you will. But I think we, we demonstrate that by the way we live and by the things that frustrate us and the things that cause us to like question whether or not we're going to keep following Jesus or not. What do we do when he doesn't deliver our expectations or he doesn't do what we think you should do or when I'm in that place of insecurity with no other hope other than him delivering me I think oftentimes we live as if we judge what he gives us and not what, what not him himself you know we need to we need to be convinced that life is found in him not in just what he gives And if we can have him at the expense of everything else, is it worth it? The disciples, the testimony of the early church would say, absolutely. I was talking to some people out in the lobby this morning before the service, and they were asking about our sister church in Nepal that I was supposed to remind you to give to the scholarship thing, but I forgot. Okay. Um, Just in the last few years, the the government has reinstituted laws against the Christians so that if you so they had about a 20 year or 15 year season of like no persecution but over the last few years there's been laws where if you get baptized you'll go to prison things like that and so i emailed the church i'm like hey are you guys stressed about this they're like ah whatever been there done that like everybody i know there where it had to be baptized in secret because they, they could have gone to prison for two years by making a commitment for christ and they are unconcerned about having to go back there again because they know jesus is enough But I think oftentimes we just want what we get from Jesus, and even if our knowledge and trust and understanding of him is just superficial and we never have life. That brings us to the second thing, the journey across the sea, and I'm going to have to kick up my speed a little bit, but this is the second of those two well-known stories, and I'll start reading at verse uh, 16. 
Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. And it, and it had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. And the sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. When, therefore, they had rowed about three or four miles, which is about halfway across the lake, they beheld Jesus walking on the sea, drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. They were willing, therefore, to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The next day, the multitude that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered his, with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they had ate bread and, and the, after the Lord had given thanks. When the multitude therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? It's interesting, when verses 15 through 21, we have this abbreviated version of, Je of the whole incident of Jesus walking on the water. And if you're familiar with the story... Um, like, there's a whole ton of things that John doesn't tell us in his account of it. Like, if you're, like in, in Matthew chapter, I think it's 14, where, the, where the, the more full account of walking on the water, we have things like it talks about how big the waves were. It talks about Peter calling out to Jesus. It talks about Peter stepping out of the boat and walking towards him. It talks about him sinking in and Jesus, like, pulling him out. It has all of these details that John just completely leads off. I think there's a, there's a temptation. Let's just import all those details and like fill out this story. But John intentionally leaves those details off for us because he wants us to focus on something else. Like what he does do for us, though, is verses 16 through 21, which is the account of the disciples. I printed it out, and I didn't count the words, but on the page, there, it's exactly almost the same length as verses 22 through 25 of when all the crowds came across the sea. What he's doing for us is he's, He's wanting to contrast, like, the crowd's journey across the sea, verses 22 through 25, and the disciples' journey across the sea, verses 16 through 21, and teach us something similar. Look what the disciples learn. You know, they, they get into the boat. The details we are given is that they get out halfway into the sea. This wind comes up. The sea's being stirred up. It's dark. And then it says Jesus hadn't come to them. They're alone. Jesus intentionally kind of puts his disciples in a situation where they're in the dark, out at the sea, no sight of land, in a storm, straining at the oars. And it's dark. And they feel like they're alone. I don't know if, I think, I think John's wanting to feel some of that. Like, and this is a difficult spot to be in the middle of the storm. And, and we're not really told any of the emotions of the disciples at this point until they see Jesus walking to them on the water. So here they are a couple miles out to, out to sea, out, out in the lake. Sea is not really a sea, but out in this lake, big lake. There's big waves, and, and the storms could get pretty big on the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level. Um, there's like high kind of like, like cliffs around it, and and there's a lot of temperature and pressure changes that happen because of the sea. And as the night cools, you'll get this cold air and this warm air thing that happens. And I'm not a meteorologist, but it creates these strong winds that rush down onto the sea in the night. So there's these big storms. Like I've seen videos of them, like, like breakers coming across. 
in the dark, alone. And then all of a sudden, this guy comes walking to them on the water. Then it tells us they were afraid, right? Like, they probably were afraid before, but now they're afraid. It's Davy Jones, right? Coming to get, coming to get them. I don't know what they're thinking. And then Jesus says what? It is I. Do not be afraid. And, they, and it says they were willing to let him get into the boat. This is a funny statement. And then immediately, they were at the port where they wanted to go. You know, Jesus was teaching his disciples, no matter how dark and stormy it gets, his presence is enough to alleviate the fear. It is I. In fact, the way it's written, and there's debate about whether Jesus intended it this way, but he, the way it's written is, I am. Do not be afraid. And the disciples realize, like, oh, with Jesus, there's peace in the midst of the storm. In fact, like Psalm, better look it up. Psalm 107, there's a whole section that talks about the sea, but verses 29 through 30. I can imagine as, they, as the church saying this, like if the disciples saying this after having this experience, listen to like a couple of the lines from the song. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet. So he guided them to their desired haven. It's talking about God's power in the storm in that psalm. And then all of a sudden, like, there's this gladness because God was the one who stills the storm and brings them safely home. It's exactly what happened here in John. Jesus is the one with his presence, like, alleviates fear and takes them home. We'll come back to that. But let's look at the multitude then, starting at verse 22. The next day, the multitude, they're on the other side of the lake still, that, that stood on the other side of the sea, saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. So they're like, well, there was two boats. All the disciples got into one boat. There's only one boat left, so Jesus is probably going to come to this boat. So we're all going to wait around here where this boat is. And then in the morning, like, boat's still there, and... And no Jesus. Apparently, the people in Tiberias had heard that about the whole feeding of the 5,000 because this whole flotilla of boats from Tiberias, which is on the western side of the, of the Sea of Galilee, this whole flotilla of boats comes over to their side to try to find Jesus too. So two crowds, you've got the, the Navy crowd and the Army crowd, like land and sea, right? You got this whole multitude of there. Everybody's looking for Jesus and they can't find him. So they all get into the boats now they're Marines. They all get into the boats and they travel to Capernaum. Like Capernaum was Jesus' like hometown, like when he was in Galilee. Um, it was a pretty good conclusion that he was probably there. So they all head over to Capernaum. Uh, verse 24, uh, verse 25. And when they found him there, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? It's this funny picture of like these crowds of people just kind of frantically looking for Jesus coming from Tiberias, they were already there, and they finally all pile into these boats. They, they head across the sea, they get there, and they don't even know the right question to ask. Oh, like, when did you get here? Well, the real question is, is, how did you get here? I walked across the water and then teleported, right? 
they don't even know the questions to ask because they're just so wrapped up in their own agenda. And they have zero experience with Jesus walking on the water. They came across the, they came across the Sea of Galilee in the light of day, in the calmness of the morning, in the excitement of a whole flotilla of boats. No storm for them, no fear for them, and no experience of who Jesus really is for them. They just come across the sea and they have no clue of what even to ask. I think this is, again, that this picture of faith of, and if your life is like darkness and storm and fear, it might be exactly where God wants you to be. Disciples, because it's, it's in those moments of darkness and fear and feeling alone that Jesus meets his people. Like, would you rather be, live this life of kind of like going through the cycles of darkness and fear and sensing the peace and the, the lifting of all that because, like, you've come to know Jesus better? Or do you just want to, like, go for the cruise in the light of day? And have it all be easy. Jesus never promises this, like the easy life for people. In fact, if we're going to know him, it comes through like those, again, that like regular rhythm of desperation, being put beyond our abilities, like darkness and, and fear, and seeing him like provide, seeing him deliver, seeing him bring, bring us safely home. I think there's a challenge for us here in our faith. Like, do we believe that Jesus is worth it? Do we believe that he's the prophet that's come like a new Moses to deliver us? Do we believe that he's the king who's going to establish his kingdom that's filled with grace and truth and righteousness and beauty? And if we, if we do, are we willing to like submit to his word and submit to his lordship in our life? That's the kind of faith where life is found. If you're just a consumer, that version of Jesus that you've made for yourself is probably going to disappoint you. But the life of faith is a life that acknowledges that he is enough by himself to provide for his people. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 3. I think I have this on the screen. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, Brian, you can come up. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the, from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, are, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you see all of that? Your inheritance is imperishable. It is undefiled. It will not fade away. Like there is nothing that can diminish it if you're a true follower of Christ. Because you are protected by God's power for the salvation that's ready to be revealed. Like if you, if you think you've experienced like the greatness of God's grace to you in your salvation, it is nothing compared to what's coming. And then he says this.
In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's like, you can rejoice even though you're being tested and your faith is being tested because it's going to result in glory and honor when Jesus Christ returns. And then he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Like, rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Because he and, and everything that he's going to accomplish for us is completely worth it to get to know him better day by day through those various trials. So, Brian, why don't you close us, then I'll close us in prayer. It's interesting, at the end of this chapter, Jesus talks to his disciples, and he says, Jesus therefore said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Let's pray. Father, just thank you for your grace to us and how you teach us through so many ways. And because of your commitment to us in Christ, we can, we can come to know you even deeper and deeper um, through the trials we face, through the difficulties, through the inadequacies we have. And Father, I just ask that you would give us the grace to, to know how to turn to you in each of those moments, um, to rely upon you, to rely upon your word, and, and love you deeper as, as you deliver us time and time again. Thank you that you're a God who saves and that you have the words of eternal life. And if there's anyone here who hasn't experienced the life that's found in you, I just ask that you would reveal yourself to them right now, that you would open their eyes, that you would convict their hearts, and that you would draw them to yourself. I just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.